This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Joanna Buckley, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much, Cheryl. Nice to be yeah. here. Yeah, no, it's really lovely. Joanna is an author, copywriter, editor and part-time careers counsellor based in Melbourne. Her debut novel, Lily Harford's Last Request, is a thought-provoking and heartfelt story about one woman beginning to battle dementia who is ready to end her life and how that affects those around her. Look, you know, um, what a beautiful, gentle, lovely book. And I think it's, you know, although it's fiction, it rings a lot of truth, I'm sure, for a lot of people, as it does for me. My mother was diagnosed with dementia just at the beginning of COVID, and I think lockdown accelerated that for her. Mm. Um, but I don't think we talk about it enough. And there are some people in my family who feel a bit of shame around that, around her having dementia. Yes, I think it is a... It's a a bit of a hidden topic. I think it's just so wrought with, you know, grief for those people around the person having dementia. Mm -hmm. And I know in my family, I mean, this is, you know, why I wrote on this topic, but I've been, you know, in contact with uh, Dying With Dignity um, Mm. in Victoria because that's where I'm from. And, you know, they just say there are just thousands of families out there that reach out to them um, who have a loved one who's got mm. dementia mm. and really does do want to take control over how that ends. And, yeah, they're desperate. They, yeah. Mm. So I kind of hope that in writing this story, if there's families out there who are going through that, that, uh, you know, it does, it punches you in the guts, I think, the story. So, I, you know, from readers telling me that, but it also might make them feel less alone. That, mm, mm. going through what they're going through. Mm. Why do you think there's a stigma around it? I don't know that is stigma the right word. I, I, I just think it's a helplessness perhaps and people yeah. just don't know, you know, what to, what to do, where to turn. They do feel very, um, yeah, just very helpless because you're mm. watching a loved one disappear. Mm. The person that you know is disappearing mm. in front of your eyes and mm. that can be quick or it can be slow, but it's... Mm. Um, it's just gut-wrenching and mm. maybe it's just almost too sad to talk about. I'm not sure, mm. Cheryl. It's, yeah. Mm. Do you think it's more prevalent? Oh, I'm probably not the one to answer that. I mean, in my family, my grandfather died of dementia. My father started to get dementia, um, hence the, yeah, the topic of the book. But I couldn't tell you on statistics. That'd be something for mm. a, uh, you mm. know, someone that works in that field and has mm. all of that data. Mm. Um, I, I mean, a- you know, when my grandfather, it was called senility, yes. uh, you know, off yes. with the fairies, yes. <laughs> his kind of cute, you know, um, terms. Now it's something that is medically, you know, um, diagnosed and um, I think that's a helpful thing. Mm. Um, but I, Do you know I, what yeah. I think, Joanna? It's, it's you know to me, 
that that whole phrase, oh, she's lost her mind, now I mm. know where that comes from. Mm. Mm. Yeah, lost her marbles, lost her mind, all that sort mm. of thing, yeah. Mm. Okay, so talk to me about your career because you've, I mean, debut book, so congratulations. It's come <laughs> late, <you. laughs> later in your career. It has. Um, it has. So tell me about your trajectory and how you came to writing a book. Right. Well, um, I'd love to say I was a big reader as a child and I always wanted to be a writer, but you know what? I actually wanted to be the next Jane Goodall when I was in my late teens and early 20s. I actually studied zoology at university. Oh, wow. Um, And to me, writing was, uh, gosh, it was a a chore because it was all about essays and things like that, which, you know, no, not much joy for me in that. But, look, it was a gradual thing. I I found that in any job I had, so I've been a, a teacher, uh, an education officer, I've worked in small business, done all sorts of things, and the, the part of those jobs that I always liked the most was the writing. So I knew I liked, once it wasn't about essays, I liked writing. And then, well, in 2013, I, um, I'm not even sure why, but I entered a short story competition with the local library. And of course, you know, it didn't go anywhere, but I just found that time just passed so quickly when I was at that keyboard. And my kids would come and say, hey, mum, you know, we're going to have dinner anytime soon. And I wouldn't realise it was already six o'clock at night. And that's sort of and it's funny, Cheryl, because I, my day job now is a careers counsellor in a school. And one of the things I say to the students is, the ideal when you're thinking about what you want to do in your life is to find what's called flow, which means that when you're at an activity, time passes quickly, you're just so in that moment, you, you're filled with joy really. And here I was, I wrote this short story and I thought, oh, I've just found flow. <laughs> so it just sort of went from there and I thought, well, if I liked writing a short story, why don't I try writing a long one, i.e. a novel? And, um, yeah, so that's mm. what I did. I, I probably started penning something in about 2016. So it's been a long journey. Mm, mm. I mean, they don't. it doesn't come easily. Are you still working as a counsellor? I am, yeah, yeah. part-time, yeah, yeah. which allows me to write on the other days. Well, you know, in theory when I'm not running a yeah. household. And- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, do you know there are so many people that I speak to who aren't doing what they thought they'd be doing when they left school, and I often oh, wonder mm. what the role of a counsellor is. I mean, because who can decide at the age of mm. 17, 18? you know, mm. what you're going Look, to be. Look, I, I, don't, I don't think you can expect them to know. They're just still yeah. finding themselves. And um, I think it's just about saying, look, take the, the best step for you for now. And yes. it'll all yes. organically work itself out down the track as you as you mature and get life experience and so on. Yeah, yeah and, and different decisions take you to different places. And, mm. you know, who would have known that you and I ended up here? Yeah, this is yeah. crazy. Yeah. That's right. Um, so then talk to me. Uh, do you know the, uh, another subject that I'd like to talk about is older women and fiction mm. because that's not that common either. No. And yet the majority of readers in this genre are definitely um, older women and we mm. hardly ever write for that audience. It's no. like that whole thing where people say, you know, I'm invisible or, you know, that they're not acknowledged, whereas... Um, there is so much, I think, to learn from older characters, older storytellers, mm-hmm. older readers. Mm. I was actually listening to some of your interviews last week and I must say it was um, with, I think, Karen, sorry, I've lost her surname now. I'm trying to think what it was. Um, but she she spoke about how she interviewed uh, elderly people to get their stories and that she decided that instead of referring to them as old people, we mm. need to be calling them 
whole people because I, I just related so much to that, Cheryl, because mm. when I've, I don't know, every time I've seen an, an elderly person, this is just me, you know, on a train or something like that, I don't look at them as that 80-year-old or whatever they are. I look at them and I wonder now, what have you done in your life and what did you look like when you were 30 and mm. did you once sit there like I am now looking at someone else who, who was elderly at that time and um, yeah so I think for me having the main character in her mid-80s was important and I wanted to show her not just as that age and with dementia but very much peeling back the layers of who Lily is through flashbacks and mm. so that the reader really has a sense of her and all the versions that sit inside her and that she still relates to and mm. and remembers and wants to be uh, recognised for. Mm. We're so ageist. Um, I think we're, we're moving more and more away from that. But we are, I, I mean, I remember when I was 21, uh, my partner at the time had a, a friend who was 30 and uh, that per- and he was having a 30th birthday p- party. And I, I remember this so clearly saying, I'm not going to an old person's party. <laughs> oh, 30. <laughs> and yeah, I was right. 21. But we have that, don't we, <laughs> as we're growing up. And only recently I went to, um, here in San Francisco, I went to a gallery exhibition with an older woman and and I said to her you know I'm feeling really old and she said how old are you? and she's oh gosh that is so young so it's all about perspective mm-hmm. isn't it yep yeah very much so yeah and I mean there's three characters in my book and in fact um her daughter uh, Lily's daughter Pauline she's in her mid-50s mm-hmm. and as you say there's a lot of readers out there who are the other side of 50 you know my mm. side of 50 yeah and, um, and my side of 50 yeah yeah and you know she's going through all of those issues of being you know overwhelmed with uh, all the things she's trying to juggle in her life you know as a, yeah. as a daughter yeah. whose mother is deteriorating as, a, as a, a mother and a wife and a grandmother and a, a school principal and uh, you know, I'm hoping that readers, um, yes, the story is scaffolded on, you know, the whole issue of, of a woman wanting to take control of the end of her life, but uh, it has two other female characters in it and they're on their own journeys and, you know, I, I just hope that some of the issues that come up for those characters are things that the readers can relate to as well in their own lives. Mm. Talk to me about the research you did because writing about dementia, you kind of can't get that wrong, can you? And to place yourself in an 83-year-old's mind, you can't get that wrong either. Talk to me about the process. Hmm. I have to admit I didn't do any research as such on dementia. I drew from my own personal experience with my grandfather, mm-hmm. uh, my father, being in nursing homes for like, visit, as visiting both of them, mm-hmm. um, and I just put myself well, in Lily's head, um, mm. you know, based on on my own experience. Yeah. Mm. So if I got it right, perhaps it's because it was did come from real rather than mm. reading up in books. Mm. Yeah. I've always been uh, not an advocate, but always supported uh, euthanasia. Like that has been something that I, I mean, I had a friend who died at 49 and I remember thinking at the time, you know, surely there's got to be a way that she doesn't suffer, you know. Mm. So there is that that has been something that, you know, medically assisted euthanasia has been something that I've always thought that, you know, is humane, right? Mm. However, when I I had to put my dog down a couple of years ago, <laughs> and I know this sounds trivial, but it is, I felt I had to take him to the vet and we had to put him down. And 
I could not live with that for a very long time, even though it was the right thing to do. I absolutely knew it was the right thing to do. Mm. So I think there is so much complexity around that subject Mm. that Mm. we often don't talk about. Mm. You know, people are, oh, you know, you can't go around murdering someone. Well, one, it's not that, but two, it's not easy either way. Yeah, and I think that of humans, you know, like how difficult, like it was that difficult doing it to a dog, then how mm. difficult is it for, you know, humans to make that decision about mm. other humans? Mm. Well, see, my, my, my grandpa ended up in, this is the 70s, 1970s, and he was in his 80s by then. He lost his memory. He ended up in a nursing home and here was this beautiful you know, definition of gentleman, a gentleman, lovely sense of humour, just a gorgeous human being. And I remember visiting him when I was, I guess, 15, something like that, mm-hmm. and walked into this his room in the nursing home. And it was, a, you know, perfectly good nursing home standards, mm-hmm. you know, for the 70s. But he was literally strapped into a chair, oh, into God. his room. He couldn't move. Two yeah. arms on the, on the arm, you know, chairs, uh, arms of the chair and strapped in. And that was so traumatic for me to see that. And apparently it's because he had Very. walked out one day and tried to catch a taxi somewhere and, you know, he, he yeah. was, the lights were on but no one was home and yeah. he didn't recognise his wife of 60 years. Can you even imagine what that was like mm. for her? Mm. Um, but he eventually died. It took a, a few years after that and I, I was probably protected from the last parts of that and didn't see it but... His was a bad death mm. and he didn't deserve it, you know. And my dad, having watched that, his father, said from then on, and I, you know, I want a dollar for every time I'd heard dad say, if that ever happens to me, I want to take a pill. Give me a pill. You know, so I kind of grew up with that. And as it turned out, dad did start to lose his memory in his late 80s. And he did go into a nursing home for only six weeks, as it turns out, because he got pneumonia. And he died with his children around him just being kept comfortable the hospital knew his wishes his long-standing wishes about assisted dying he had made that very clear so instead of giving him antibiotics they gave him morphine and Mm. as deaths go it was a good death and Mm. we've all been so grateful I can't tell you how grateful we are to the doctors that were in control Mm. at that time and it was the bottom line is it was what he wanted Mm. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As you say, I've had to take my beloved dog to the vet and watch the injection Mm. go in and I'm still traumatised but 
it was the right thing to do. And and I just think if people can have, if this book helps just people to talk about it, you know, and just whether it's around the dinner table or at the water cooler or in book club or whatever it is, I think talking about it can't be a bad thing. Well, that's and what it, we're it's doing up to everyone now. to make up their own mind at the end of yeah, the day. Yeah, and that's what we're right doing. right for them, yeah. Yeah, and that's what we're doing now, which, you know, mm. I really appreciate. Another thing that I've that has tortured me about um, that is, and I guess everybody's experience of dementia is different. But say, for instance, my mother, it's too late for her to make that decision. Mm. And this is, I, I guess, and I'm no expert by any means on the legislation that, uh, you know, mm. has been gradually coming in in Australia and in most of the states now, but it doesn't cover dementia. No. And that's the problem. Mm. That's, that's and, that, and that's exactly why in the book Lily you know, she says, I want to take control now while I still know that I want to take control, <laughs> you know, mm. because once it gets to a certain point, it's mm. too late. Yeah. Mm. It's mm. sort of like asking for the epidural when you're about to give birth. How many women would relate to that? It's too late. You're about to give birth. No, but I want it. <laughs> mm. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it's really tough, Cheryl, and I really feel for you and your family because. Mm. Mm. Well, you've um, been through it, you know. Mm. Um, so this is a more light heart. I, I mean, you know, it has mm. its moments, um, of course, um, because the sub- subject is very delicate, but it's a beautiful story and there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of living and laughter and everything else. So I don't want people, readers to think that it's um that it's morbid in any way or or deeply sad in any way but you know life when you're writing about growing old is sad isn't it Hmm. Um, one of the things that my mother used to say to us um I'd often hear her say this you know back when is life gets sadder as you get older and I used to as a young person wonder what she meant by that but I think what she meant by it is that you start losing your friends you you know people start to die then you've got to make difficult decisions and all sorts of things Mm. what's that saying from um Bette Davis is old age isn't for sissies or something like that so Mm. which is true you know aches Mm. and pains and all the rest but it was important for me that to also have yes other main characters in the book so it's not just about Lily and her wish to die it's about Lily's life and the joy in that and the challenges and it's about you know a nurse aide that comes to see her as a grandmother really and and her out outside life to her job and and the daughter and so on so yes I was important to have those uplifting joyous moments that are just about you know, well, and the complexity also, of life. Yeah. That's exactly right. And that's what you get from her. You get a joy that she's lived a big life and she's lived a full life. And you're right. Sometimes when we see old people on the train or we see them walking down the street, do we think about what kind of life they've had? And I think that this book really um, is very beautiful and tenderly told about the Thank ageing you. process. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So you attempted to write a book and you did write a book, but tell me about when it was and the discipline of writing a book because that's mm. that's not easy either. Mm. I was definitely a pantser, not a plotter. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> I don't think know, I've I, spoken to many plotters actually, most people. Well, I've started writing my second book and I'm definitely trying to be more of the plotter. Look, I, I can't say I was particularly disciplined in that I didn't set aside a certain time or a certain day. I fitted it in between being a mum and, uh, you know, a paid job. Yeah. Um, and I just chipped away. You know, I had a first draft and then I went through it again and I polished and I reckon I probably, you know, countless times had a structural editor look at it, 
uh, went to workshops, learnt more about the craft of writing because I really had no background in that. Tell me the value of workshops. Oh, I can't Ooh. overestimate. Brilliant. I look. I did ones on plot, on uh, character development, on just the craft of writing, and I knew none of this. None of it at all. Mm. And every single one I came away and then I worked on my manuscript and made it better. And mm. so I'm forever indebted to the the various people who's, you know, ran those workshops, whether it was at the Bar and Writers Festival or at a writers conference, you know, in Melbourne, whatever it was. Yeah. Mm. Fantastic. I, mm. I agree with that. I think that so much goes into writing books. Uh, it's a solitary um, occupation, as you know. Mm. But then at the end, it's kind of collaborative and it's a group effort, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. so many people that have an input. I mean, my daughter read through it and she ended up, I didn't know this of her, you know, she's in her mid-20s and she was the most wonderful editor and brought such insightful comments to the editing process. And um, uh, the only thing I would say I would really do differently next time, I'll plot more, I don't think I'll get the, uh, I think it's called beta readers, is that right? See, that shows how new I am to this whole thing, being friends and family, because you just get these platitudes and at the end of the day you don't trust that they really mean it anyway. So I think I must join a writer's group and mm. Mm. Uh, do that this for the next book. Mm. And tell me how you got published. Well, I pitched at a writer's conference in 2019. And how did you know to do that? Well, actually, another author who's a, a friend of my sister, um, Catherine Fox. Oh, um, she's I, a very I successful. Know yeah, and she mentored Catherine. me sort of via phone, but um, yeah. given me lots of in- wonderful encouragement through this. Yeah, and she suggested I join actually the Romance Writers association she said it's the most professionally run association and I'd gain a lot from it and I thought well I'm not writing a romance but I trust you Kathy so yeah. and it was at a conference in Melbourne in 2019 and you literally have you know two minutes or five minutes or whatever to pitch your story to publishing houses that send reps along mm. and uh yeah they liked the sound of it and it just went from there you know you send your first three chapters and then you send the whole thing and look it was a whole year later before I actually had the yes from them but uh yeah you learn to be patient it's not a it's not a quick process mm. um, yeah no I can see why they they fell for this book because uh, I, as I said it gives it's so sensitive in so many ways and it's serious and it's sad but it's got a really beautiful uplifting vibe right throughout and it's it shows a lot of empathy too I think for fiction writing Thank you. That means a lot. Yeah. So you started your second book? I have. I'm probably 50,000 words in. Yeah. First draft. But I I do have it all plotted out. (laughs) So I'm quite pleased about that. I know where it's going to go. I just have to fill in those those gaps. So a bit more research to do and just time. Um, But, of course, because now I'm in this sort of phase of my book's just come out, that Lily Harford's just come out, so I haven't really had much time to... My, my headspace is with Lily, not with the new book at the moment. Mm. Right. So, I mean, you've talked about some of the things you might do differently, but is there like a different approach to writing that you're going to take in terms of the discipline of writing or you're going to do what you did last time? Um, yeah, there will be differences. So apart from plotting, I will, you know, dedicate the days. So I only work three days a week in a school. Yeah. So yeah. I do have two days a week that I will um set aside I think you have to set the site time aside 
And honestly, there's nothing like going to a cafe and buying lots of cups of tea because then you can't think, oh, I really should get that washing out of the machine or I should really stack the dishwasher or take the dog for a walk. So, yes, it'll be very much once this phase is over with Lily Harford's last request, I will get into the groove and see it as a second job. I think that's yeah. what you really have to do. Yeah, absolutely. That's mm. the really- but a job I absolutely love. So, you know, it's <laughs> not, you know, you don't have to twist my arm on that one. No. <laughs> And how did you feel when it got published, when it was accepted? How can you describe that? Uh, I Look, you know, I can hand on heart say that when I started to write a book, it was not to be published. I never, I knew the odds of getting published. (laughs) Not great. Not great. And I just wanted something. It, It was literally on a bucket list, you know, go to the Canadian Rockies, do this, do that, write a novel. Mm. Um, And I just wanted something for my kids to be proud of me and to leave a legacy. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. I think so, I might might find it easier to climb a mountain and write a book. Well, yeah, you know. Yeah. And it really wasn't until I started to go to those workshops I was talking about and getting some quite positive feedback from the people running them because, you know, you have to show them bits of your work and so on. And I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe I should have a go at having this published. So to have that phone call from the acquisitions meeting saying, yep, we're going to do it, the contract's on its way sort of thing, I I can still remember, I was at school, I was at work, and I went outside to take the phone call onto the Oval. I'm just standing there, you know, just, (laughs) yeah, totally surreal and still is surreal. I I, I still pinch myself that I am, well, talking to you right now. Yeah. You know, how did I get to be here? It's incredible. Wonderful. It's great to to feel that way, I think. But there's so much good debut fiction coming out and it's really around these sorts of topics as well. Like there's an honesty about it. It's, you know, we can talk about growing old, we can talk about dementia and we can bring that into fiction that's enjoyable to read. And I think that's why we've seen a lot of successful debut writing at the moment Mm. in this genre, definitely. Mm. Yeah. Well, I've I've been told that writing uh, romance is um, perhaps, you know, a lucrative thing to do and there's a big, big thirst for that and I understand that too. But, yeah, that's not my thing and it was important for me to write, you know, about a a social issue that um, is, you know, in my heart. So Mm. and if it's in mine, it's probably in lots and lots of families out there. Yeah. Mm, Absolutely. Well, I think you nailed it, Joanna. Thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Thank Thank you. you, Cheryl. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.